and I began to go into the book of Malachi, and we made it through, I think, seven or eight verses is all. Uh, and this is a subject which is uh, unending, frankly. We could go through the Bible from the book of Genesis through Revelation and spend years in a series of talking about honoring God and glorifying Him in the way that He should be honored and glorified. Because that's really what the Bible is all about. It's what Satan was unwilling to do when he began to put himself above God and break the first and great commandment. And it's what mankind did in the Garden of Eden and essentially what we've been doing ever since. And we know clearly that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Just a normal, natural, human mind, as born, as growing up, has an animosity, an enmity against God. Because we want to be self-directed, we want to set our own rules, do our own things, and even sometimes when there are rules, we figure they apply to everybody but me because we want to do what we want to do. And that is just the normal, natural, everyday human being. And it takes a conversion, a change from that standpoint, for us to begin to consider that we should put God ahead of ourselves. And that is quite a revelation when you begin to realize that putting God above you is a constant, second-by-second, minute-by-minute endeavor that never ends because we wish to put our feelings, our desires, our comfort, our whatever you want to name that we like ahead of God and indulge ourselves in whatever we wish to do. That is a process of conversion from that natural animosity and enmity and putting self first that we struggle with all our lives. And you don't even have to be in a conversion process to see this among the run of people in the world. Everyone tends to put himself, take God out of the picture, and we tend to put ourselves above anyone else around us. That which would please us is more important than what would please them. That's why the commandments are structured the way that they are. To put God ahead of everything and then to love ourselves at least as much as we do our neighbors. God does not require us to love them more than we love ourselves, but just asking, asking us to love them as much as we do ourselves is a pretty tall order, isn't it? Because that is not our tendency. It's hard to come by. Now, I started into this, and, and toward the end of the sermon last week, I got into the sacrifice of Christ and the things that he did for us and how we cannot even approach the Father except through his perfect life and the sacrifice that he made for us. Because Malachi opened up by showing that God is not pleased with the sacrifices uh, the approach that we use in coming before him, and that indeed none of us can present a perfect record 
by any stretch of the imagination, before God. So we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and I think perhaps we look upon the veil of the temple that was written in twain when Christ died as a technicality, though now we have access to the Father. But perhaps we miss to some degree in our daily lives the emotion of the situation and what really was offered to us. Because he said, pray to the Father, and in this manner pray you, our Father who is in heaven. That's the model prayer. That is the one we go to as our Father in heaven. And we take it sometimes too much for granted, not realizing that had Christ not come before, there's no way we could address the Father and have him hear us with our record. It is only through his record and the expunging of our sins and his presence as a mediator before the Father on the throne every day that we are allowed to approach the Father and then we have to do it in the name of the Son by his authority, by what he did for you and me. That's the only way we're even allowed to go there. So if we set aside and do not honor Christ in the way that we should, where is our mediator? How do we approach the Father? We can't. Now, something came up a little this week, actually in the last couple of days, that brought me back to this thought that I dropped at the end of the sermon last week that I've just been uh, reviewing. And that is that someone, not here, but someone else who listens to us and essentially believes what we do, said that that individual was having difficulty uh, and did not believe that the first day of unleavened bread should be a holy day or a feast, but that there should be the eight-day deal that we had in worldwide all those years. And... Uh, I, I understand that. It's, it's a, after you've been taught that all your life and you read the scriptures and, and you are looking at them a certain way, uh, that just seems the way to you it ought to be. Uh, but then, totally apart from that, it was mentioned to me that in the light of what I said last week re regarding Christ and us only being able to approach the Father through Him, that the Passover itself is one of those things where we do not honor Him perhaps in the way that we should, and doctrinally, really, we couldn't until we made the change. Because after the Passover, which we did solemnly, we would then go to work the next day and eat leavening the next day, and it was subliminally, in our minds at least, that he was being tortured and that he would eventually die that afternoon, but you're still working on air conditioner or whatever and eating a hamburger for lunch or, you know, whatever. And some say, well, I try to set that aside in my mind as being more important. But the point is, with the doctrine as we had it, it didn't make you do that. So some would maybe not even think of it during that day, busy with other things. Some might give it a fleeting thought. Others maybe tried to get away, away from work and think more on what Christ was going through that day for us. Well, the very fact that they would 
take that much time and energy to try to separate it out like that shows that they have at least some comprehension that that is a very important time and therefore they would focus on trying to make it important even though doctrinally they didn't believe that it was a Sabbath. But they recognized something important is going on here, but they didn't have the vehicle to work within to make it what it really ought to be. And the point is that we were not really honoring Christ fully in our previous way of approaching Passover. It makes it very clear that that was a day that was to be an ordinance and a feast forever. That day, this day it said, speaking of the 14th. Now consider that what happened on the 14th in both Israel, ancient Israel, and with Christ are the very beginnings of the plan of salvation. The most important things that occurred and have in our lives up to this point began that day. The death of our Savior. The opening of salvation and the opportunity to go before God. That his perfect record could be presented to God where our imperfect record could not and through him then we could gain access that was denied otherwise. The most important events in the whole plan of salvation occurred that day, and yet we did not honor Christ fully that day. We honored him a little during the Passover service for 45 minutes, and the rest of the day was devoted to our normal routines, unless we happened to think about it or maybe meditated on it a bit during the day or whatever. Now when you consider all that happened on that day, it could not be anything but a Sabbath. Now what did ancient Israel do when they were about to come out of Egypt? They had bowed down to Pharaoh for 400 years. They had worshipped the false gods of Egypt, of Mitzrayim, or of sin, idolatry, for 400 years give or take, depending on when they were really enslaved. But what the night of the 14th represented was them standing in their homes, their sandals on, their loins girded, keeping watch, ready to move and leave at a moment's notice. And what they officially did when the word came from Pharaoh to leave immediately is they put aside Pharaoh as God and all of the gods of Egypt and followed Moses and Moses God. That was the moment that they began to come out of idolatry. And they did what Christ tells us to do in Luke. They left their land... They left their homes. They may have left relatives who refused to go. Who knows? And walked out to follow God for the first time in 400 years. Now that is incredible when you put it in that context. 
And now here at the end, God tells us, leave the idolatry of this world and its system and its culture and come and follow me and leave behind lands and homes and friends and relatives, even mates and children, and come and follow me. Put your idolatry away and come and follow me. And that is exactly what was typified on that 14th day when they came out of Egypt and the whole process was renewed in a spiritual vein when Christ himself died on that day <coughs> having suffered for us all night and all day until he was finally crucified. And you tell me that that should not be a holy day? What greater events can you name that have ever occurred. And God wouldn't set that side of a day aside. It can't not be a holy day. Now if you have a technicality in Leviticus 23 or somewhere that you think changes that, maybe you don't have the right explanation of it yet, and I won't go there now, but I think I have a better one now than I did when I did the booklet. But understand the power and the majesty and the honor that should be bequeathed upon our Father for sending His Son, and the Son for doing what He did for us. And find a more important day to set aside than that. You won't find it. The only day that comes close would be atonement, being a fast and picturing the time when we marry Christ. That is the fulfilling of the plan. So the first that gets it started is the holy day, and the last that finishes it on atonement is a holy day, when what we are here for actually comes to pass. And how can you put one of those days ahead of the other? One that starts the engagement and one that consummates it. They can't get any clearer, I don't think, than that. Then make your details fit that if, they, if you can't find any that do. Now, I'm approaching this from honoring our Father. I want to point out in Isaiah 9-6 a verse that has kind of puzzled me over the years. Uh, it's speaking clearly of Christ, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, we know the Father, God Almighty, is the Father, and Christ is typified as the Son. Now, how would Christ be called the Everlasting Father? He is our brother, is he not? Let's think about this for a moment from the standpoint, or actually two standpoints, I guess. One is that we do have our Father in heaven to whom we pray in the name of the Son. We understand that. But we also refer to our fathers in the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Moses, the one who pictured Christ as the deliverer of Egypt to bring them out of idolatry. 
Moses is a type of Christ in that sense because he is the one through his death that opened the way for us to come out of idolatry. But we refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our fathers in the faith. Do we forget that Christ was in the same line and that he is in that sense a father in the line of people that came down from Abraham to us? Same genealogy. In that sense, he is one of our fathers in the faith. Because way back, he lived the first perfect life. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them accomplished it. But he did. So if there's a father in the faith to look to, in that sense, from the human line of Abraham on down, Christ would be the preeminent one who is our father in the faith. Now, he wears many hats. He's also our brother. He's also our husband-to-be. So he takes on different uh, hats depending upon which analogy you're using at the moment. But he fits in so many of them. Now, is it blasphemy to call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our fathers when God the Father is our father? No, because we understand he is the overall father, but they were the ones that set the path of faithfulness, and in that sense are our fathers that we look to. And the Bible itself puts them in that uh, category. So it is not wrong for us to do that, even though we understand there is the father. But Christ is a father as well. And when you consider honoring our Father in heaven, we can speak first of all of Almighty God, Jehovah the Father. But we can also include Christ in that, and Elohim is a unipolar word which means two beings. So when you say God, you can refer to the Father and to the Son in one breath with the use of that Hebrew word. So, to me, it makes a little more sense from that standpoint that he would be called the Everlasting Father. That always seemed strange to me, but now I see how it could fit in and make sense. So, we could do a series on the Father. We could do a series on the Son. And they both deserve incredible honor from us as human beings. Uh, but in, in some senses, you cannot separate them as they are one in thought and action and deed and so on, even though they are separate beings. So honor deity in heaven, the Father and the Son, and realize that the honor of Father can actually be bestowed upon both of them as we consider some of these scriptures. Now let's go back to the book of Malachi again. And I want to focus a little more on God's complaint, his frustration, his difficulty with human beings, because to correct the problem, you have to fully recognize what it is, accept it, admit it, uh, and then begin to work on the difficulty. Now, we have tended here at the end time to look upon this first chapter of Malachi as a problem with the ministry, and indeed it is, 
And we have read Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 about the problems in the ministry, and we've been very quick to say, well, that was the ministers of the Worldwide Church of God. We may not have understood the whole flow of prophecy and how much all of it has to do with the church, but that part we picked up right away, that the ministers are the problem. Well, now, let's understand, and I think we do, that we are all priests of God in training. We are all the ministry of God. We are being trained as kings and priests. We are being trained as leaders in the world tomorrow, as a bride of Christ, and the many analogies that refer to who we are and what we are being trained to do. So, yes, the ministry as humans did do a lot of things wrong. And they are certainly culpable when you talk about Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1, among many other scriptures. But let's understand that we as human beings, every one of us who are types of Christ in our own right, once we are converted, repent, are baptized, and have God's Spirit beginning to grow within us, we have become a type of Christ. We are to be like him, are we not? We are to think as he thought. We are to do as he did. In other words, we're little Christ's uh, in the womb, if you will, to be born at the time of the resurrection. So we are there, starting out as kind of slimy, and we grow and we grow and we grow, and we begin to develop into what looks like a human being, after about nine months in the womb with a little child, and then we can be born as a full-fledged human being. And the same is true of us, and that analogy is correct. We are here, not ready to be born, not fully formed, not perfect yet, but developing. And we are to be like him. So we can say, well, Moses or John the Baptist or whoever might have been a type of Christ. No, every one of us are. And we have to develop to become as he was and is. It puts a pretty strong responsibility upon our shoulders. And before I'm done today, I hope we begin to grasp the vision of how big that is. All right, let's pick it up here. God complains and says, where is my honor in verse 6? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? And then we talked a little about how he, we offer polluted bread. We are not perfect, and yet we come before him. And he wants us to clear that up. He wants us to be the right kind of living sacrifice, as we read about in Romans 12.1. He wants us to become mature and perfect spiritually. And it is a process. But he looked at the church as developed in the end time, and it had problems. And then he spewed it out of his mouth as vomit and said, now straighten up. And that's a tall order. How do you go from being vomit to being a perfect type of Christ? It is not an easy process, and it is not necessarily a quick process. 
It takes daily work. I don't want to be offered to God as polluted. And I don't want him to look at me and say, Oof, you again? And my only justification is say, But I'm coming in the name of Christ, who was pure, even though I'm not. And he says, Okay, I accept that. What an incredible attitude he has. He says, you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And you offer the lame and the sick, uh, sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor, your physical rulers. Will they be pleased? Now what does he say? What is his attitude toward us? I don't want us to be discouraged. I want us to be encouraged and inspired to be what God wants us to be so that he doesn't say these things about us anymore. Okay? We want him to be able to say, that is my son in whom I am well pleased. Not someone that he has turned his face from as he has the church here at the end time. We want him to turn back. We want him to smile and shine in grace and favor and be pleased with us. That's why he says in Revelation 2 and 3 and talks about the different problems in the church and says, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit in my throne, to the tree of life, to all the promises he makes throughout chapters 2 and 3. He wants us to change, to be different, to grow, to overcome, to put aside that carnal enmity and begin to be converted to his way of thinking. And it is a process we have to go through. So he said, I don't like the way things are. He spit it out. Now he wants it reformed, reshaped. He wants overcoming and growth. He wants us to be different than what we were when we were in Worldwide Church of God. That part should be absolutely clear to us by now. He doesn't want me as I was. He does not want me as I am. He wants me, but to be different. That's the way we have to look at it. It's not that God doesn't want us. He does, and I'll prove that to you shortly. But at the same time, he wants improvements made. Will he be pleased with you or accept your person, says the Eternal of hosts? Verse 9, And now I ask you, I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious to us. Approach him as the sinner did in the New Testament that Christ talked about, who hung his head and says, Oh, God, be, right, be uh, merciful to me, a sinner. Not to those who would brag self-righteously about how their way is so good, even among themselves. What makes us think that our way of doing things is better than anyone else's? Our own opinion of ourselves and our way of doing things. We think more highly of ourselves sometimes than we ought to think. And we judge others by what our standard of whatever we're talking about might be. They might have just as good a way of doing something. But we get critical of each other. Now, we need to hang our head and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it says here. This has been by your means. What has happened? God says, we did. It's been our means. Will he regard your person, says the eternal of hosts, 
Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for nothing? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for nothing. In other words, we always want a reward. We want an attaboy. We want paid. We want something. And the physical ministry and those in Pasadena came to uh, look upon jet airplanes and fine homes and a swimming pool in every yard and all those things as important, and they wanted paid for their work. And that became way too much the focus. Now, there's nothing wrong with being paid for the work. The, work, the labor is worthy of his hire. But that should not become the fashion. It should not become the focus and the goal. And so easy it is for recompense or pay to become what's important to human beings. I have no pleasure in you, says the eternal of hosts. In other words, it should be a free will, a willingness, a giving of ourselves, a recognition that we're nothing. And that if we can do something for the purpose and the causes of God and honor and glorify his name above all, that's something we should wish, want, desire to do. Because he is the holy God of all creation. But instead, we are parsimonious about it and we give grudgingly. <coughs> he says, if we will obey him, he will be our friend. Now, if you have friends in the flesh, somebody that you really relate to, you like, you enjoy the company of, do you have difficulty getting together with them? No, you don't. It's easy to do. You gravitate toward it. You like to be with those that you enjoy. That's just natural. Now, there are those who might be to you difficult personalities, and you don't hit it off right. It seems like your thoughts always clash. You, you know, there's some people, you just don't think enough like them to really enjoy being with them because it's always a struggle. And that's just personality. It isn't necessarily that one is right and one is wrong always. Sometimes those things are a, a part, of, part of it. But there are those that are hard to be around and those that are easy to be around. So it's easy to go to those that we like to be with. Let me ask you a question. Why is it so hard to go to God every day? When there's trouble... When you have difficulties, it's fairly easy to go to God. But when things are going pretty well, you're having a pretty good day, you're not too motivated to get in and pray the way maybe you should or get into his word the way you should. But other things crowd it out. Now, if you want to be with your very best friend on earth as a human being, you find time. You find a way. You get there somehow now, those that you're not so close to, well, yeah, I'll see them someday. And, you know, hi, how are you? Bye-bye. But somebody you really like to be with, you'll find a way to be with them fairly regularly. Now, if you really like to be with God, why is it it's so hard to find a way with Him sometimes? It isn't always, but often it is. Because that level of closeness and relationship is not as strong, not as good, as it ought to be. 
And therefore he can say, I have no pleasure in you. You're doing this to get something. You know, that is mostly what we as individuals, apart from the ministry and pay that we talked about, when do you go to God the most? When you want something. Healing, a job, uh, a, a child or a relationship problem, a marriage problem, any kind of an emotional difficulty or problem in your life, that's when you tend to go to God is when you want something. You want paid through his blessing. That's the pay you seek, not a dollar, but something from him for you. How often, in contrast, do we just go to God because we feel inside an inspiration because of who he is and what he's done, and we're so excited to go talk to him about how great he is. Now that happens with all of us, I'm sure, but not probably as often as we go to him because we want something. And our most fervent prayers are when we want something really, really badly. We need to work more on songs of praise and prayers of praise and honor and glory to our Father and Creator than we sometimes do. Not a needy prayer, but come boldly recognizing how great He is and pray from that standpoint. You go through the Psalms, and you will see that David prayed a lot of that kind of prayers. Now, yes, he did pray for things he needed. His enemies became, uh, or came against him. He had all kinds of problems and trials on his, in his life, some of them, most of them, self-inflicted. And he did go to God about those things. So I'm not saying that's wrong, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But don't leave out the glory and the honor to God Almighty who has made everything. Consider the stars. Consider the trees. Consider the creation around us. Consider our own bodies which are made so marvelously as is put in Scripture. And then give praise, honor, and glory to Him. And then you're not offering a torn, a lame sacrifice. You're offering something from the bottom of your heart, an inspiration, a glory that you desire to give to your best friend, or two of them, the Father and the Son. That is something we should gravitate toward, but we are not yet fully converted, are we? Conversion is a process. It starts and grows, like the fetus starts and grows. And it does take time. It does take patience, as we heard in the sermonette. It doesn't come easy. But we're working toward that goal. From the rising, verse 11, of the sun, even to the going down of the same, 
My name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, says the Eternal of hosts. Now God says, I have this problem at the end time, that's what, who Malachi is talking to, and to spiritual Israel, who are the ones who are in a position to glorify his name, the ones that he is dealing with, the ones that he is, was upset with and still is to one degree or another. And he says, when this is all done, the Gentiles around the world are going to praise and honor and burn incense to me. He said, I am going to fix this problem, and I'm going to fix it in ways that are beyond your comprehension. But he's addressing us. Why? Because now is our day of salvation. Now we are the ones who are supposed to represent him on this earth as the elect. And if we look like the world, how does that honor and glorify God? We have to be utterly different than this world around us. Visibly different. And give by our presence an honor and a glory to Almighty God. That's what he expects of us. That's what he's saying here. You're the ones I'm dealing with, and you're not what I want you to be, but I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to fix it so even the Gentiles beyond you are all going to glorify me before this is over. But you have profaned it, in that you say the table of the eternal is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. So we look at the things of God and we don't honor them and respect them in the way that we should. We look at it sometimes the way the world did, does. Well, God's not that involved. God isn't paying attention. The things that God has given us are not what we want. He is not blessing us the way we want. We're not getting the answers we want. What God is offering us right now, we say is polluted. It isn't good enough. Now he's saying what you're offering me isn't good enough, and we're saying what God is offering us is not good enough. And so we get in our little whiny moods, in our little unthankful attitudes, and say, what you're giving me, Lord, isn't what I wanted. Like a little spoiled brat. Are we questioning him? When we get an attitude, yes, we are. We're in that mood and that attitude because we don't think his judgment is good enough. We don't think he's giving us what we want or need or desire. Isn't that really what it comes down to? If I gave him the glory and the honor and trusted his judgment and believed with all my heart 
that he counts the hair on my head and is really concerned about me, then I look at what was on my plate and I say, this isn't good enough, Lord. What you've given me is contemptible to me and it's profaned. It's polluted. It isn't what I wanted. I don't eat green beans, Lord. I want meat. Manna isn't good enough. I want meat. Has the attitude changed? <laughs> Isn't it all about the same that it always was? This isn't the job I wanted, God. I wanted a better one. This is not the car I wish to drive. Give me a better one. On and on. We get discontent. And by that we're showing that we're not giving God the honor and glory that he deserves and we do not trust his judgment. God gives you exactly what you need to train you, to teach you, to try you, to test you, to develop patience and love, mercy, the right kind of judgment, faithfulness. He puts us through all these trials and tests because we are not what we are supposed to be, and we, as human beings, generally have to learn the hard way, don't we? We'll do it our way until it bites us, and then maybe we'll do it God's way until the bite heals, and then we'll do it again, and get bit again. That's just the way humans, partially converted, are. So we offer him that which is less than good, and what he offers is us. We impugn and say, it's not good enough. Give me more. Give me better. He's not into that. He's not into whining. He's not into selfishness and self-centeredness. He is not into a lot of things. A lot of us here are single, maybe would like to be married. Maybe some of us are married and would like to be single. <laughs> all these things go all kinds of directions. But God has put us in the state in which he presently wants to work with us, whatever his reasons may be. And we have to accept that and do the best we can under those circumstances to learn what we need to learn so that God will then increase the blessings and give us something better down the line. Now, yes, there are things that are better maybe than what you are or have right now. But maybe they're the best thing for you right now so that you learn so that you can have something better later. So what's best for me today may not be what's best for me tomorrow. As we grow, as we overcome, then we are able to accept better situations. If God just blessed us as human beings, and this has been proven many times, and it's been proven in your lifetime over and over, if God just gives you everything you want, you begin to despise and reject Him, and you begin to forget Him. We are not mature enough spiritually 
to have many blessings yet. That's just the bottom line. I'm sorry. We can't handle that. Like the movie, you can't handle the truth. Well, we can't handle the blessings yet. We can, we're struggling to handle the trials and tests. And if God gave the blessings before you learn to handle them, then you will despise them. And I, We had a lot of blessings in Worldwide. And over time, we began to despise and pay less and less attention to God and fall into a lukewarm Laodicean condition. That's what he's talking about right here in Malachi. Is you've got to turn this around. We have to appreciate and be thankful for every blessing we have. You know, our, our, our lives change, and sometimes we whine a whole lot more about what we don't have, and sometimes we're in more thankful moods and give thanks to God for what we do have rather than complain about what we don't have. And this kind of goes up and down with every one of us as individuals, doesn't it? So I'm not here to condemn us entirely because sometimes we are thankful. Sometimes we are patient. Sometimes we are faithful. We just need to do it more and more and more and become more consistent in it and grow in it so that we become more and more acceptable to God because he's put us here for a reason and a purpose. He didn't call you and me here in this place for no reason. We are here for a specific reason. And we need to get prepared and ready to fulfill that purpose that we are here for. You say, well, why doesn't it happen sooner? Well, he called us. He could have waited and called us here just as things are ready to pop, as I presumed might have been the case when he first began to call us to do this. But he didn't. He called us enough ahead of time that he could get us here and get us worked over and worked on and rearranged to the point that maybe we would be ready by the time he's ready for this to happen. He's not delaying it for us. He got us here soon enough to begin to whip us into shape so that we'd be ready by the time his plan calls for. So it's not that he forgot we're here, or, well, why didn't you wait and call us just before you wanted it done? He's got to get us ready. So he did it enough ahead of time to do it. Now, how are we responding? Are we getting ready? Are we almost ready? Is it getting closer? I'm beginning to read reports now that a lot of economic advisors are saying, this thing's coming by June, July, August. It's coming down. The economy's going to collapse. Now, I'm not reading scripture on that. I'm just saying God says it's going to happen. And now some of these people are beginning to look at the signs and say, this thing looks like it's getting pretty close. Now, I've gone back and forth on this in terms of does the gathering come before the crash? Because Zephaniah says, gathered before the decree. And I think I may have overlooked something there. It may just be that the crash has to come before people begin to wake up, and then God will do some things that show them what to do. 
If you go back and look at Zephaniah, and I'm not going there for sake of time, but it starts out talking about the day of the Lord and God taking a hand in the affairs of the world that will culminate in the destruction. Then he shows from that context and perspective that there is to be a financial crash, and he says, gather yourselves before the destruction comes. I had thought that the decree of destruction was the financial crash. But it may be we have to go back to the very beginning of the book where he says the day of the Lord. That's a bigger crash than just a financial crash. So he says before all this comes down, gather yourselves. So it may be that that financial crash will occur to get people's attention and then God will do some things that cause it to happen. Now, if this thing is cracking apart as fast as some think, even in the world, it might be before next Passover. And it might be that the day of the Lord and the overall things that are about to happen, somebody before all that comes down had better wake up. And they may not before the financial crash comes. I don't know. That's just a thought to put in there. But if God called us with enough lead time for us to overcome and grow and to be in the attitude we need to be in, this thing is becoming, it appears, fairly imminent. We had best be glorifying and honoring our Father in heaven. So we've called his blessings and what he's done for us not good enough. You, all, you said also, verse 13, Behold, what a weariness is it. And you know, it can get that way, and we do sometimes get in that attitude, don't we? It's hard to grow. It's hard to change. It's hard to overcome. It's hard to pray sometimes. It's hard to put our heads in this book. It's hard to serve our brethren. It's hard to do a lot of things that God tells us to do. And sometimes we just become weary with the whole process. I know I'm not ready, but bring it anyway. I just want it over with. Some kind of an attitude we sometimes allow ourselves to get in. What a weariness is it. And you have snuffed at it. Or kind of turned your nose up a little bit sometimes at the process and what we have to go through. Says the Eternal of Hosts. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, says the Eternal? That really, you know, I am God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, ruler of the entire universe, and you want to present that to me, which is lame and sick and diseased and blind and deaf? Come on, think here a little bit, God says, is what you bring before me. Does a tired, sleepy time, ho-hum, I know I ought to pray, attitude, get it done? Sometimes that's the best you can muster. I know that. It is for me. But I try to set aside some quality time to talk to God in a quality manner and not just bring him a tired, Betty time. Now I lay myself down to sleep. Pray my soul, my whatever, however it went. I don't care about it. 
Shall I accept this of your hands? But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifices to the eternal a corrupt thing. You know, you might have what's there, but you don't want to give your best to God. You want to give it to your best friend. You want to give it to your mate. You want to give it somewhere else. Give him your best. What does he say? For I am a great king, says the eternal of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. And if it's not, it's going to be soon, is the implication. Understand what we are and who he is. Now, I want to make this even more personal. I want to go back to the book of Isaiah. Now, we have been through this, and I, I don't, I, I'll just do a little bit of review here. Uh, if you get to chapter 40, the, verse, the chapters, oh, the five or six before this, talk about Hezekiah and how he was about to die and how God performed a miracle and he had another 15 years added to his life. Uh, I think that the work of Hezekiah here in this prophecy of the end time uh, as I see it, probably relates closer to the life of Herbert Armstrong than any other thing that I can see that might fit here. I think Hezekiah, King Hezekiah of that day, uh, was fulfilled in a latter time by Herbert Armstrong. He did have the heart attack. He almost died. He came back and lived some more productive years. And Hezekiah got in trouble here for showing uh, the Gentile kings everything that he had. And Herbert Armstrong went with his jet airplanes and highfalutin money and bought his way into king's houses. He didn't even know that they were being paid in many cases, but they were for him to have an audience by Stan Rader and some others. I won't go into all that again, but... Uh, he showed them everything he had and tried to convince them. And he was not, in that sense, in a bad attitude. And I don't mean to knock Herbert Armstrong down here. He certainly was used of God to do a great calling and to restore some things. He did not restore all things. We've learned a lot of things since then that he did not restore, that he didn't have right. And when he died, the end did not come as it would of the Elijah to be. I think he was a type in one sense of Elijah, a more minor one, but not the final one to come. But uh, because of some of the things and the approach that Hezekiah used and some of the approach that Herbert Armstrong got used, God was not entirely pleased. And in fact, he says in Zechariah 2, I was a little frustrated or alarmed or upset and then when the heathen came in, I became very angry. So he was somewhat alarmed and frustrated by what Herbert Armstrong and we, the ministry, and the church were doing. But then when the Tkachas came in, the heathen, he became very angry. And then he blew it apart. And most of the church went along with what Tkachas said, didn't they? So I think that this fits worldwide church of God. And then God told Hezekiah through Isaiah that your, your sons will become eunuchs in the kingdom of Babylon. And eunuchs means essentially powerless. 
can't generate anything, can't produce anything, uh, childless. Uh, and that's the way that it would be. Well, after Herbert Armstrong died, the church was led back to Babylon, back to Protestant theology, and they became powerless and useless like eunuchs and a harem. Now, Hezekiah said, well, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And Herbert Armstrong essentially said the same thing. Now, he feared, he understood the church was in trouble. And he said, I have to stay alive to keep it going or try to get it back on track. I heard him say that. And he was having difficulty doing that because he felt somewhat powerless. And he knew that the sons, that the ministry, did not have the power to do it. So there was a frustration there that was in him, and yet through his days there was essentially peace and truth. And it came unraveled right after that as the ministry became eunuchs in the Babylonian society again and lost all power. Then you have a change in chapter 40. Totally different work begins there. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfortably to them that their warfare is accomplished, their iniquity is pardoned, and it becomes a prophecy. It becomes part of a message. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the eternal and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Straighten things out. Get them right. Has to be done. That is a new work. Then he says down in verse 5, The glory of the eternal shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. Now didn't he say that in Malachi 1? My name will be glorified among the Gentiles. So what he is starting here after Herbert Armstrong's work in Isaiah 40 is something that is going to lead to his name being glorified before all flesh and they will see it together as God develops it. That's what comes after Worldwide became powerless. It said, the voice said, cry. What do you cry? That all flesh is grass that God blows on the grass and withers it. God is in charge. God is great. Man and everything he does is like grass that a hot breath can blow on and wither it. In other words, God is the one we look to. His honor, his glory. That is what is to be cried. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the spirit of the eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass, it withers and fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. So mankind is going to wither down here like a field in August from the sun. And God is going to come out on top and be glorified. That is the message. Now, it then shows toward the end of that chapter that all nations before him are as nothing and so on. And the, the rest of that chapter is about how great he is and how small and minuscule and unimportant what man can do is. 
Verse 27, Why say you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the eternal, and my judgment is passed over from my God? How can we as a church, how can we as a nation, say that, well, God's not paying that much attention to what I'm doing, or the nation to what it's doing? Yes, God is paying attention. He did taste what he saw, what he put in his mouth. And it did not taste good. He was paying attention to what he ate. And he spit it out. Verse 31, But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. When picked up by the Spirit of God, we won't say, I am wearied by this whole thing, but we will suddenly have the energy, the power, the drive, the dynamic capacity to do what God wants done. So he is going to do that with the people, is he not? Chapter 41, keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let them speak. Uh, let us come together to judgment. Then he talks about raising up a righteous man from the east who will come out, and then how we will all be of good courage and will encourage one another because it's easy to get discouraged. But if we work together, if we recognize that the body is one and that all the parts have to work together in harmony, we will become united and we will care and we will help and strengthen and encourage one another. That's what it says. And not to fear. <coughs> Verse 14, Fear not, you worm Jacob and you men of Israel. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, is with you. Who is the Redeemer, the Redeemer of? Those who are being converted now. The ones God is working with now. And he's going to make us a sharp threshing instrument. He's going to give us power so that the nations cannot destroy us, but we can destroy them through plagues, through whatever means are necessary. And then he says in verse 13, he's going to plant, well, 18, open rivers in the high places, fountains in the midst of the valleys and pools and plant trees, seven, probably the seven churches is the symbolism here. That they may see and know, verse 29, and consider and understand together that the hand of the Eternal has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Something is going to happen that is going to be so big the mankind and the church would say, God had to do that. Man could not do it. Well, that's what's coming. I, I want to drop down. It talks about one who would come and, and tell these things uh, in verse 27 of 41. Uh, Let's skip on, talks about showing joy about halfway through chapter 42 and how his servant, verse 19, is blind and deaf but righteous and he will have his eyes and ears opened. And I think that's referring to a human being who is walking the earth today who is somewhat blind and deaf even though has heard some of these things. Uh, but will have the eyes and ears opened at the time, but is leading a, an essentially righteous life. 
We used to refer to this uh, in terms of Herbert Armstrong, who was physically blind and deaf, <coughs> almost, but I think now it applies to someone who is, for the moment, spiritually blind and deaf to certain things. But God says he is righteous, and he will magnify the law and make it honorable. So whoever this individual is, is someone who does not presently see, but will see, I think, in the near future. We're going to wake up. When God does the things that he's talking about, we just read about some things that are going to cause everybody to say, wow, only God could do that. That isn't people. Now, I want us to go to 43. This is where my target has been, but I wanted to lay a little bit of context there. We've been through those chapters before, and I'll not belabor it too long. But uh, let's look at chapter 43. Now, thus says the Eternal that created you, O Jacob. He puts himself here as the creator, see? He that formed you, O Israel, fear not. I've called you by your name. You are mine. Now, he's referring to his people here at the end time. After blowing them out of his mouth, he starts a new work, a work that has to be done, a message that has to be given. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. So the same things he did with Daniel, with Israel at the Red Sea and at the Jordan River and so on, he's going to do again with his people here in the end time. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Mitzrayim for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for you. Those peoples gave up the land they had to give it to us. God did that. Says verse 5, Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west and the north and the south. Keep not back, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is the gathering that Haggai and Zechariah speak of here at the end. Even everyone that is called by my name, and you have to be a part of his church to be called by his name. Otherwise, you are called by the name of the father of this world, Satan the devil. So this is talking to church members only here. Everyone called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. If you are a member of the church today who is beginning to understand what God's work in the end time will be, that puts you in the category of one that the God of heaven and earth has created and brought forth for His glory. It is our job and our responsibility to show the glory of God. Now, we could only take it so far as some do and say, well, we need to be different from the world. We need to be a little better. We need to act better than the world. Now let's understand this in the context in which God puts it. You have been brought here to show the glory of God. Shoulder that responsibility. It's a lot bigger than we might imagine. 
Where is his honor? Where is his glory? It is going to be found in his called out ones. It's the only place it will show for the very elect, which is what we need to become. Now notice what he says. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Not just one who will be a leader at some point, but those who just don't see what God is doing. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who, am who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. Bring all your witnesses, world. You show what's going to happen. You show the way it's going to be. Or shut up. One of the two. Then he says again to those whom he has called out, You are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. You were not here in this room, or on these airwaves, or possibly in the church scattered somewhere without God's foreknowledge and his selection. It is not just us here. I hope it includes us. But he's going to call from the north, south, east, and west, he said in verse 5. People from different congregations, different pieces of the church. So it includes them. But he is putting together a witness panel that he has got. You have been called to be on that jury to show the world the right judgment. <clears throat> it says that beside me there is no Savior, verse 11. Verse 12, I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. There's putting the idolatry out of Egypt and the world. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. Says it again, doesn't he? Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall stop it? Then he says in verse 14, that he's speaking to us still, to the church, the faithful part of the church. Thus says the eternal, and I don't mean that we're the only faithful. What I'm saying is, wherever they are in the world, the faithful of God. For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. The worldwide trade, the worldwide economic situation. He is going to bring it down, he says, for our sake. This economic crash is about us. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He is going to show us by causing this to happen and this nation to go down that we are his servants. And he's doing it to show that. Thus says the Eternal which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which brings forth the chariot and the horse, referring to Egypt again. Verse 18, Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Now we are to do that sometimes. 
Consider what God has done in the past, but now he's putting the focus on what he's about to do. I will do a new thing. You, you, there's a point where we can forget about the past. We're in the middle of this, and it's going to get so big, and it's a new thing that is happening now that our focus is there. It shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness. I'm tearing down the nation around you, but out in the wilderness I'm going to give water and comfort and protection to give drink to my people, my chosen. This day have I formed, uh, this people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Where is his honor? If it's anywhere on the earth, it's in the faithful members of God's church. It's the only place that even understand him and could begin to honor him in the way that he wants to be honored. And he's going to use those to begin a work that is finally going to encompass the whole earth. And the whole earth will give honor to God. We, my brothers and sisters, are the beginning of that. Now here's a problem that he has to deal with in this context, at this time. The things we're reading about are things that are just about to begin to happen. But there remains yet a problem. Verse 22. You could turn back to Malachi and compare it to this and it says almost the same thing. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the small cattle of your burnt offerings, neither have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with an offering, nor wearied you with incense. God hasn't made us do physical uh, sacrifices and so on. But he's talking about an attitude here and not bringing him the best that we can possibly bring. Like he said, you had a nice one, but you brought this one to me. Verse 24, you have bought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have made me to serve with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities. He says, you think you're getting tired, what about me? I have to put up with your conduct day in and day out. I have to put up with your whiny, unthankful, bitchy attitudes. I'm sick of it. <clears throat> we begin to get the picture. I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. We have trouble forgetting each other's sins. We have trouble forgetting our own sins. They plague us sometimes. God says he is going to take those away, and he will not remember them. It is his glory to cover sin, not to show it or gossip about it or tattletale about it. It's God's glory to cover sin. But it's man's glory to tell all the problems that somebody else has so we look better by comparison. That's got to go away. 
I will not remember your sins. So he says, you've been this way, but I am going to forgive you, and I'm going to remove your sins, because you are my witnesses, and I am going to use you to show my glory to the whole world. So in spite of what we are, God is going to turn it around, and he's going to use those who will be faithful to show his glory to the whole world. You see what his complaint is? There's nobody who will stand up and be what they ought to be and glorify God in the way he wants to be glorified. We all fall so short. So we need to capture this vision. We need to capture this knowledge, this inspiration that is in these words and begin to rise to the challenge not say, oh Lord, it's too big for me. No, shoulder the load. He called you. If he hadn't thought you could make it, he wouldn't have called you. And here you are. Accept the responsibility. Begin to honor and glorify God and bring the best and be the best we can be through his spirit and be truly converted, not partially with the enmity and the animosity we have to his rules and his ways that is so natural to us. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. God says, put me in your mind. Remember me and let's plead together. Remember what it says about his spirit uh, pleads with our spirit or prevails with our spirit that he helps us, we do what we can, and he makes up the difference with his power and his spirit. And sometimes the groanings of the earth and our groanings reach him, and he reaches in and helps. Talk to him, communicate with him, plead together about our lacks and our infirmities. Declare you that you may be justified. Take a stand. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Make a stand with yourself to honor and to glorify God the way he wants to be glorified. Your first father has sinned and your teachers have transgressed against me. Herbert Armstrong did. I don't have time to go into all that in many ways. And our teachers, the ministry, including me, did transgress against God and our approach and our attitude and how we approached him and not giving him the very best that we could have and being on fire and hot, but instead becoming, eh, yeah, ho-hum. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. I blew it apart. Now he says, get the vision and be my witnesses glorify me, and if you will, I will use you to glorify the world, or to bring my glory to the world, I should say. You are my witnesses, he says at least three times in this one chapter. And then he goes on to show what he's going to do in the next few verse chapters, which I don't have to go into. But I wanted to tie this together with what we're reading in Malachi 
and see that the message is there and the hope is there for those who will truly honor God and answer the question, where is my honor?